0: with the Wild Plant Culture Podcast. It's December. It's getting cold. It's getting dark early. The plants are not completely dormant, but they're headed that way. They're headed for the deep freeze. And so I thought we'd have a little change of pace. This is a time of year for me in my seasonal rhythm where a lot of the growing work has been done. Field botany wrapping up. I'm starting to write reports. And I'm looking to all those things on the farm in the woods that didn't get taken care of during the busyness of the growing season. And I'm sharpening tools and I'm changing fluids and I'm doing repairs. And in that spirit, I bring to you today Shane Labrake. I took a, clac- a tractor maintenance, repair, and safety class with Shane at Great Road Farm about six or seven years ago, and it was a great class. I remember just being really inspired by Shane's detail, his stories, his philosophies, and so I bring you today an unexpected angle, plant people, the relationship between tool maintenance, and sustainability. I know some of you folks are farmers, homesteaders, ecological restoration practitioners, tool users of all kinds, and I hope you'll appreciate when Shane and I get into the nitty gritty here. And for those, the rest of you, I hope you're along for the ride because Shane has some really interesting things to say philosophically about what maintenance means, what design means, what safety means, what care and relationship means even between us and our machines. So stay tuned. A little side note, I always seem to have some kind of audio issue. And then we did this one on the phone, and Shane's voice came out great, but mine got worse and worse to the point where I was like, I'm a great, great robot So I actually overdubbed a lot of my questions in this. I just tried to copy whatever I'd asked Shane. The sound is better. The spontaneity might be a little bit off. So just want to let you know Shane was really laughing at all my jokes. You just can't hear it because I redubbed them and inserted them back in. Because I love you guys and I don't want you to have to suffer. And most of all I didn't want you turning it off in absolute disgust. So This podcast is probably not going to win any audiophile awards anytime soon, but at least it should be listenable. The Wild Plant Culture Podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants. Growing native plant species, doing botanical surveys, advising on stewardship. If you're looking for a native plant-related holiday gift for somebody, take a look at The Puddle Garden, which is my children's book about native plants. And also our pretty red skull-themed, native plant-themed t-shirts. You can find those both on wildrageplants.com forward slash shop. And the music at the beginning of this podcast was my old, maybe once in future band, Horse Graveyard. This time you heard the work song. And yes, that is Rachel singing a little snippet in the beginning. And I'll have the full song appended at the end of the podcast. I hope you make it that far. Because... It was an absolute joy speaking to Shane LeBrake.
1: You mentioned having two or more businesses and I think I know one side of you a little tiny bit from having taken a tractor maintenance class with you six or seven years ago. But um set the stage for us a little bit. Like what were you doing back down in Maryland and what are some of the things that you you know, sort of brought with you, and what are some things that are going to be different in your new place?
2: Well, so I originally went to Maryland in '95 to run the Ecosystem Farm, which was a project of a nonprofit called the Akakik Foundation, and it was an organic vegetable farm located on the banks of the Potomac River and our view every single day working there was looking at Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, and that's why they chose both the site and, and the project um, was to sort of demonstrate sustainable ag practices with an eye looking back at the history of the region and an eye looking ahead to the future, what it could be. And I did that for almost 13 years. and reached a point where I was in my mid-40s and just uh, either wanted to break out of the area and start a farm of my own while I still felt like I had that vital energy and ambition um, to do that at that age, um, or just, you know, start figuring out something different for myself. I knew I wanted to be self-employed for a long time as well, Yeah. and... The farm thing didn't really happen for a lot of reasons. We just weren't ready to leave. We thought about it, and um, we had some other uh, stuff that was tying us to there. So we we honored that. And so then I was sort of, okay, so what am I going to do? What can I figure out? And I had already been asked to start doing the trainings that I do on tractor operation, maintenance, and safety. That is something that had developed while I was still running the farm, where we had an apprenticeship training program. And I said, okay, let's see where this goes. I'll, I'll put some time and energy into developing this into something more substantial and real. And uh, at the time, too, I, it ran, completely randomly, in, in retrospect, I started getting phone calls to do consulting for projects. So those two things sort of evolved concurrently, and it was working nicely for a while. Um And the thing of it is, though, I realized both required a lot of travel, and I really am much more Um, Mm place-based. And so I sort of let the consulting just evaporate, (laughs) and I still will do it if somebody asks, and it works. But I I didn't promote that any longer. And the classes, on the other hand, I realized I really enjoyed doing a lot. So I wanted to put more and more of my energy into that. And if I could figure out ways, which ultimately happened, to piggyback a trip with three or four or even five or six trainings in a loop, that would make a very constructive way of doing the travel, concentrate the time away. And in a way, it fit my ethos of sustainability in that I'm making one big loop and helping a lot of people
3: yeah,
2: and not on the road multiple times to do it. So at that point, you know, we were I was doing that, and, uh, and again, now we're, you know, jump up to about 10 years ago, and I'm maybe 11 now, and I started thinking of, well, let's try thinking about leaving here again. And to my surprise, a lot of community people who had been shareholders in the CSA I ran at the farm said, hey, you know, if you would stick around, we'd hire you to do stuff on our properties, which I had never given a lot of thought to and uh, realized once again, well, maybe it's just the reality that I need to stay here, and so let's figure out where this goes. So at that point, I invested uh, some hard-earned money into getting some equipment to do that kind of work. So I bought a a tractor of my own and a whole bunch of implements and um, started doing that. So essentially, I started doing property care management when I was not on the road, for a whole bunch of people in our community. And it ended up into becoming something very uh, sustaining in in a lot of ways. I was like a community-supported resource person, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I did all kinds of stuff. The community that we lived in was unique in that it was built up around this national park where the farm was. And it had um, covenants with the National Park Service to keep it in a natural state that would protect this view of Mount Vernon. So all these homes were on five acre lots that are wooded. It was created about 60, 70 years ago. So a lot of the people, original people who built there were getting older and needed somebody to do things like tree care on their property or maintain their gravel driveways. There were gravel roads. So suddenly I'm doing all this driveway grading and even construction of driveways on new constructions. Um, A lot of tree work, which morphed into a whole new line of work that now I do training on chainsaw operation, Uh maintenance and safety. And so even though I am one, as you know, (laughs) who says in all of my classes that design is the first signal of human intention, I sort of had an intention. I did have an intention. (laughs) I wanted to be self-employed. How that design manifested was not necessarily uh, absolutely clear. It was sort of at times feeling like I was grasping, like, okay, I want to be self-employed. I have this skill base. How can I make this work where I am? So there is sort of that design intention there. And it, it just didn't always feel like it was going to be what I thought it was going to be. And maybe there's a corollary to that design is the first signal of human intention, which, by the way, is a quote from William McDonough a uh, designer architect and as i was teaching one time this this dawned on me that yeah my own example sometimes doesn't look like the design manifested what the intention was
3: yeah.
2: so i'll throw out another quote from john lennon
3: okay uh,
2: life is what happens when you're busy making other plans
3: yeah and I
2: think it's good to, be, to, to to consider both of those things all the time. Like, you know, you make plans, you have your intention, you try to fulfill that intention with a good design, but you have to make room for life. So that's how I – so then, yeah, all this stuff just sort of morphed from one thing to the next to the next, and uh, now I'm doing these chainsaw trainings and small engine machinery trainings, as well as the tractor safety operation, maintenance trainings. Um, And I do a lot of that work, too. I I really got into doing tree work in the last five years in particular. Uh, We do custom tree work. I say we have been working with a partner who's a climber, and we do a lot of tricky takedowns that involve um, getting trees to go exactly where you want them to go, generally away from something that somebody doesn't want damaged and typically in our community where we were it was in places where a tree company with a bucket truck couldn't get a bucket truck yeah so you needed somebody who could get in there and do the logistics a lot of rope work really um as much as using a chainsaw so yeah. a lot of rigging and moving things in directions so that was that's been really exhilarating and and exciting and i'm hoping there's a way to continue that here and i think there is so that's something I want to continue to, to, to develop and, and to do as long as I'm physically fit and, and able to do it.
1: Yeah. The, um, my wife's cousin is a, or was a tree climber, um, doing tree work. And it's, it's like watching a trapeze artist or something. <laughs> just watching her for like three or four hours on our property here. Like, it's kind of astonishing to see somebody like up in the canopy, just swinging around and, um, it's, it's, it's something completely beyond me to do, but, uh, really fascinating to watch.
2: Well, uh, I'll, I'll shoot you a video that my tree-climbing partner made of our work together. He okay. made a couple of cool. highlight reels of the last couple of years of our work, which are fun to watch. He's, he's more tech-savvy than me. He set them up uh-huh. and uh, put them up on YouTube, and it's kind of fun to, to see.
1: Nice. I'll share them from the podcast page if yeah. you're willing sure. to share them. So, you know, you mentioned the that quote um, about design signaling intent, Um, Or maybe I have it all botched up. Here's what I remember. I remember taking your class and you fitting that quote nicely into some context in the class. And then I feel like for a year or so, I was kind of rattling that quote off. And then it gradually faded from my memory, like, what exactly did that mean? (laughs) And I stopped saying it. So give me the refresher. you know t- tell me that quote again and tell me what it means to you and then maybe uh give me a little bit about what your intent is going forward now in your in your new place
2: Yeah sure so I should say where I got it from or where I heard it first yeah. and it was actually at a sustainable ag conference so I believe the year was 1998 and it was at a Pasa that's the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Ag which I think they've morphed their name into something different now But PASA um, holds an annual conference every February. And in February of 98, uh, the theme of the conference was designing a sustainable food system. And the executive director, Tim Bowser, at the time thought if we're going to talk about designing a sustainable food system, we should really invite a designer to deliver the keynote to frame the whole two days of the theme of the conference. So I actually bought the tape of the keynote address. I was so this is back in the day when we still use tape cassette. Uh-huh. you right. know, and I still have it. <laughs> it's right in my desk, right next to me, um, and I've listened to it dozens of times. It was one of those truly inspiring um, episodes in a lifetime where you get to hear this person speak who has a great command of the subject, is very articulate and is very inspiring. So his name's William McDonough and he started out his talk with this quote and it comes from his work as a designer, as an architect, and simply design is the first signal of human intention. Design is the first signal of human intention. So what is your intention and then what is your design That you're going to create to fulfill that intention and so this was 98 when I first heard this and if I were to look back on the 22 years since then that has in some way or another defined almost everything I've tried to do and I like the way he challenged us to think about this quote and he put it this way and again I'm paraphrasing a little bit on this part but if when you create your design what you then need to do is tease out what some of the side effects of that design could be and ask yourself are they in line with my intention Mm -hmm. and if they aren't how do i correct for that and you have to keep going back and testing the actual design manifestation to what the original intention was, and seeing if you're staying true to the intention. And he gives examples of how they do this in his company doing sustainable design, and I think it's a really good way to think about things, because so many times we have an intention, whether or not we state it as such, but we do, and we create a plan, and we go about our lives thinking we're, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to do to fulfill the intention without looking at all to the side effects of of what's going on as a result of us being engaged in this design manifestation and sometimes those side effects really aren't in line with the design at all or the intention at all rather um and so we have to check we have to test and and you know check in with ourselves and i think it's a good thing to do anyway and just you know where am I on this process? Am I staying true to my intention? Do I need to change my intention? Do I need to change the design? I think this applies to everything in life, frankly. Um, It applies to your relationships with your significant others, with your children, (laughs) even your pets. I mean, you know, it's how do we treat those around us? How do we treat the environment we live in? Um, You know, we're all in this, I I suppose anyway, given your connection to, to me and how we met, that some of the audience listening to this would be interested in sustainability. Yeah. And so we have to ask that question is what I'm doing really in line with my goals towards a more sustainable, equitable, you know, environment for the people and other species that we share this planet with. And I think about that all the time because I work with equipment (laughs) and this equipment makes noise and pollutes. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of thought that goes into that relationship about what am I doing here and how can I take these things that I know how to do with these tools and minimize the harmful impacts on the environment and on others using them and, and actually make a living at it at the same time. That That's sort of the things that go on in my head as I
0: tease out that process of when I took the class with you it was at Great Road Farm and my friend Steve Tomlinson was the farm manager there and must have told me about the class on tractor maintenance at the time getting a tractor was a distant possibility we had recently started our business had a kid we are looking for property or maybe just moved but I figured if I ever got a tractor I wanted to know how to maintain it we finally did get our tractor about a month and a half ago, which was ahead of schedule. I had figured it would be my retirement plan for my back instead of just heaving around 50-pound soil bales for the rest of my life. But, uh, you know, I grew up in New York City, and I didn't have friends who had cars or certainly not tractors. And mechanical things were at first not of interest and later kind of daunting and your class was a breakthrough for me because here was this mentor explaining the internal combustion engine in a way that made sense and it started to build a bridge for me. And I was really riveted and one of the many things I took away from the class was what you said about sustainability. If we want to be sustainable, we have to learn to take care of things.
2: Yeah, of course, and I, you know, I still use that line of thinking in my classes and for me it comes from some different personal life experiences you know without getting a great deal about it I grew up in in a house with very limited resources we had very little and there was this sense that if something broke there was no way to replace it so we were encouraged to take care of the little bit that we had and at the same time, um, when I was very young and we lived closer to my grandparents, who I, my grandfather was just this great you know, person in my memory, and he could do almost anything, it seemed. He could fix things. He had been a farmer. He was born and raised on a farm, had a farm for many years, very successful, did a bunch of other things, including carpentry and road construction. and And so there was this sense of growing up around – farming and farmers and and people in general in rural areas who with very little knew how to keep things going and take care of things. So I think this stewardship ethic was fostered in me at a young age. And I was also involved in scouts as a kid. um, And I went all the way to becoming an Eagle Scout. And um, And this was back in the 70s, and and certainly there was at the time still this strong sense of an ecological movement happening, and that all appealed to me. And I think as I grew older and started working with equipment myself uh, and understanding it, and I, I should point out, and you may remember this from the class, that even though I was around all that stuff as a kid, and I worked on farms, and we grew vegetables for a roadside farm stand, I worked on dairy farms, and worked around equipment, uh, I was not at all good with any of it, and was told, you know, don't let Shane try and fix anything, because it'll only make it worse. So I grew up with a serious complex,
3: and yeah. Yeah.
2: I did really well academically, and you know that worked to my advantage in terms of later life developments, but at the time, I was around all these people who I admired who were really good at doing things, or so it seemed at the time, and I felt like a total klutz, that it was just beyond me. I didn't understand it. I always screwed things up. And when I finally had the chance to, to get into farming as in my early 30s professionally, at that point I realized I'm going to have to figure this stuff out because all of these mentors in my memory did this stuff. That was part of their job description, was taking care of things. And the good, the ones who did it well, their operations thrived. And it looked like they thrived. You know, everything was always in good order. And the ones who didn't, those operations didn't thrive. And there was just busted stuff around all the time. <laughs> and it was sort of sad to see. So I really took it upon myself to figure out how am I going to do this with equipment. And I remember getting my first tractor. I was 30 years old or something. And it was a little Farmall Cub cultivating tractor from the 1950s. And this guy that I bought it from my own age at the time, but had grown up in a in an auto repair shop, had bought this tractor and restored it. And so it was beautiful. And I remember being really impressed standing next to him as we're going over some things. And he's like, oh, I need to tighten that. And he looks at the the bolt, and he says, oh, that's a three-eighths, and I'm looking at it thinking, how did you know that, you know? Uh, And I get this little tractor, which is a really tiny (laughs) tractor, and I remember driving it the first few times and feeling terrified, like, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing out here, and this is after having worked on a large dairy farm with a lot of bigger equipment, but just, you know, now it's on me, like, I I have to manage this, I have to care for this, I have to learn how to operate it. And I think I just really held myself to a high bar and said, you got to figure this out, and um, recognizing that it wasn't going to be an immediate process. And this is pre-Internet days, by the way, too. This is 25, 30 years ago. So I had to learn really the hard way, the old school way of just taking my time and gaining appreciation for all the different things involved and figuring out what's involved in taking care of this, which leads to my whole maintenance thing, which is if we're going to talk about sustainability and we're going to use this equipment that uses fossil fuels, and not only for the production of energy, but in the manufacturing of it in the first place, then we should want to care for it as best as possible and make it last. I mean, that has to be part of the sustainability equation as well. And if it's running well, it's less likely to pollute the air as much. And if you're doing your maintenance routinely, it's also going to allow that machine to run more efficiently, meaning that the fuel that it uses is going to be converted into the power it was designed to deliver, going back to that design thing. And so we should want to get the most out of our investment and that it should run as well as it possibly can, delivering the power that we want it to deliver to do the work we need it to do, and doing it in a way that is least harmful to the environment as possible. So maintenance becomes a critical part of that whole picture. The engine needs to run well. So you need to learn some real basic stuff about how to keep an engine running well. And the other thing I always like to point out is that maintenance is not repair repair is generally what happens when uh... any number of things but one would be you didn't understand how to operate the machine the machine correctly in the first place yeah. and you damaged it somehow you didn't understand its design the intention for it and you violated that and damaged it now it needs yeah. a repair or you didn't care for it the way it was designed to be cared for and now you've got a bigger problem um, or in some cases, you bought something that was maybe not optimal, less expensive, could say cheap, and the components are just made poorly, and so you have metal fatigue or you know the, the components that make it work are just not of high quality and they give out quickly. So if you can, buy the best that you can up front and then learn how to use it properly and learn how to care for it properly so you can avoid repair um at all and i think from my own experience with a huge number of machines over the years with that as my guiding philosophy i've had very little in the way of repair ever to deal with Um i have <laughs> without getting into great detail you know, i have over 25 small engine machines between chainsaws and generator mowing machines uh trimmers um, i have to think of what they all are, but I keep all of them running. I do all of that myself, and I repairs just aren't an issue. I just It's just not an issue.
0: That's really powerful for me. That was a really big puzzle piece for me when I took the class. I feel like I'm entering into this phase of life that is like the glee and maintenance phase. It might just be because I have some things that are not total garbage-picked crap now, and every time I'm maintaining something, I think about you and I think about those cars in Cuba, like those old American cars that they just maintained for decades and decades. And sometimes I'm doing some, you know, trying to learn how to do some work on my vehicle and uh, you know, just think like, oh, I don't have the right part or the right tool. You know, what, what were those people in Cuba doing? And, uh, I recently got a 2001 Toyota 4Runner and I, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with taking care of it and, uh, you know, just having fun with it and, and learning. And, uh, I, I had to take it into the dealer and they took a look at the frame and there's some significant areas of rust on the frame in one spot. And they were like, Hey, we're not going to charge you, but you know, you basically like, you have to take this to the junkyard. It can't be driven anymore. And, uh, you know, takeaway being you got to take it to the junkyard and come here and buy another newer Toyota from us. And I went home and I was really upset. And I did a little research and I found a frame repair kit and I had it welded on. And, you know, the 4 doing great now. And I just think if if I didn't love that car so much, it'd probably be in a junkyard somewhere. And I think about all the cars that are in junkyards now that, you know, maybe they uh, weren't well maintained or they weren't cool anymore. And, I you know, I shudder to think over the last hundred years how many cars have just ended up in junkyards. I mean just like the on an ecological scale, the amount of waste there is, is I don't even want to know.
2: Well, I think, you know, we share that that sentiment and I, I think that informs a lot of my thinking is that I detest that type of waste. I think it's just it's, you know, you use the phrase planned obsessence. I think, you know, we should try as consumers concerned about sustainability to do our research before making a purchase, get the best possible thing we can buy for the money we have. That's a key point. We Not all of us have the financial resources to get the best that's out there. Yeah. But it might behoove anybody to save a little longer and get something a little bit better. And then learn how to care for it, learn how to use it properly. Those are two different things, really, using it properly and then caring for it properly so that it will last. So I have this collection of chainsaws that I use in my work and training, and one of them is from 2004, so it's 16 years old now. And that's my go-to workhorse saw. I actually have three of the same model now because I acquired two others in the along the way
3: sure.
2: and I love these saws they're all from 2004 to 2008 so they all have a lot of years on them now and they have hours and hours and hours of use on them and uh, you know I'm I'm meticulous about how I care for things when I bring a, sh- a machine in from use in the field it's like chainsaws they get cleaned. I blow them off using a blow gun with my air compressor go through them, make sure everything's clean and ready for the next the next job. And people say, wow, you got a lot of saws, it looks like they never get used. And it's like, you, no, they have literally <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on them. The amount of firewood bucking I've done, in addition to bringing down trees, is tremendous because I did a lot of firewood for a whole lot of people. And these three saws, particularly the first one, they're my go-to saws. They're light, they're powerful. They do the work great. Um, You know, I have saws that are bigger with longer bars that I use particularly for big felling jobs, but, you know, I don't need that for just doing bucking. I'd be exhausted. You know, I want something that's light, powerful, does the job. And like I say, two of these saws now 16, 14 years old, still running great, and never have needed a repair, just routine maintenance, and taking the time to care for them. And I think maybe when we did the class together whatever that was five six years ago i might have used this example but it's worth repeating anyway for your audience that years ago in farming when farmer did not have machinery internal combustion engine powered machinery they typically used draft animals for the work the heavy work around the farm the the work that involved pulling things, pushing things, moving heavy objects. I'm up here in New England, and all around me are these amazing stone walls. And I think about how did they do that? How did they move these? And sometimes, you know, these are large stones. And, of course, they probably did it in winter using sleds, but horses or livestock, draft cattle, pulling them. And think about this for a minute. With that type of power source, a draft animal. It is a living, breathing organism. It needs to be cared for every single day. It needs to be fed. It needs access to fresh water, which up here in New England in the winter means you know you have to keep that water from freezing. Um, they need exercise year-round. You can't pull a draft animal out in the early weather of March or April to do plowing when they haven't done anything all winter. That would be like asking somebody to run a marathon that sat around for eight months or never even done it before. So the point is, those farmers had to have this uh, daily relationship with their power supply on their operations that involved care for those things. So in addition to using them, they had to care for them, and that had to be built into their daily time budgets. And not only daily, but they had to prepare. They had to think about having food for those animals year-round. So that meant in the summer, you were actually thinking six months ahead when there would be no fresh pasture to feed these animals on. You're going to need something in storage. So think about that, and let's transfer that to how we think about using machinery with internal combustion engines. If we just allotted some daily care to those machines, daily meaning as used, um, that would be mimicking that, that old relationship of caring for your power supply. Yeah. So I encourage people, so you're going to use a saw, you're going to go into the woods, you're going to get your firewood, or you're going to do some cleanup around the property, spend some time both before and after caring for your tool. That should be built into the budget, the time budget for the work. That that just becomes natural for how you do things. If you're going to use a tractor, there should be some time spent. You know, it's only five or ten minutes, really. At the beginning of the day, before you start the machine, just making sure everything's in good shape. You check the fluid levels. You make sure that the three-point hitch attachments are secure. Uh, you just do a walk around, make sure that the tire air pressure looks correct. Check it every once in a while. And then at the end of the day, go through... I always pop my fuel up at the end of the day. So there's no chance of any moisture in the tank resulting in water in the fuel line. Um, And then I go around and I use my, my air compressor with a blow gun again to clean things off. Um, Just do a, you know, visual check. And that is built into the time budget I've allocated for the work. It's just always done that way. And so it, When you do it that way, it doesn't become this, oh, I've got this extra thing to do. It's just part of what you do. And if you think back again to the example I just gave about farmers working with draft animals, it wasn't a choice. You had to feed the animals. And we've somehow gotten away from that notion that we have to care for these. And going back to your idea, it's planned obsolescence. It's almost as if the designers and makers know that nobody's going to care for this stuff, so we're going to sell more because they're going to wear them out and they're going to have to buy a new one. It's like care for it. It's it's. I think that's that's got to become part of our conversation of sustainability. It's not just caring for the environment, and indirectly, this is caring for the environment because if you make something last longer, it means all those materials that went into its manufacture don't have to be made again. You're making something last, like the cars in
0: Cuba. I, I like your analogy to draft animals to a relationship of care. I mean, even if we don't own some of these tools, we ultimately all rely on them in some way, and as a nature lover and environmentalist, I think it's easy to uh, look down on some of these technologies that are polluting and the result of extractive industries. And then again, you know, we all uh, reap some of the benefits in some way. And so I appreciate what you're saying about, about putting care back into that relationship. So I'd love to get into a couple details on small engine tractor maintenance and talk about some tools. And I think I want to start out with a Sharpie marker. I think it's very Shane LeBrake.
2: Well, yeah, I think it's just, you know, Sharpies are great. And um, in terms of, you know, tractor maintenance, uh, yeah, I just did this the other day on my, my pickup truck. I changed oil on it. And so, you know, I'm changing the oil filter. And the oil filter, I get my, it's black, it's painted black, so I get a silver Sharpie and I put the date that I did it and the miles on the on the engine and I do the same thing when I'm changing fluids on a tractor so typically if I'm doing tractor maintenance and I think you alluded earlier in our email chain to like preparing for winter so this would be a good time to think about this you know Thanksgiving to Christmas things are slowing down outside a little bit let's take care of our our draft animal let's take care of our tractor So we're going to do the basic service that's required on an annual basis, which is changing certain fluids and filters. So we're going to do the engine oil and the oil filter. We're going to do the fuel filter. We're going to do the air filter, probably. And so on all of those things, uh, fuel filters can be hard to write on depending on the design. But if I know I did that the same day that I did my engine oil and oil filter and my air filters, it's all been done at the same time and generally on tractors oftentimes you can see those filters and i can just eyeball it really quickly like okay that was done on december second twenty twenty and it had you know six hundred and twenty hours on it so you know next summer i'm like oh my gosh i've already put a you know two hundred and fifty hours on this maybe i need to do an oil change mid-season Um Air pressure on tires, you know, all my rims next to the valve stem, it's written on there with a Sharpie. So I looked it up in the manual, what's the recommended air pressure for the tire, and I just put it there with a Sharpie. I just write it on the rim so that I don't have to go and look it up every time. And it makes it a lot, it's a time saver. Uh, Grease fittings, some of those grease fittings that we have to tend to regularly, like every 10 hours or every 50 hours, depending on what's recommended in the manual, Where are they? They can be a bugger to find. They hide. They get covered with dust and dirt, and you forget where they were. So I like to just make little arrows (laughs) somewhere close by pointing to it. You know, not all my equipment has this, but when I was running a farm and training apprentices, and that was part of their training, I want you to go out and grease the manure spreader, which we use for compost spreading. And I can't remember. It had something like 20 grease fittings on it. And some of them were in hard to find places. So all along that spreader, there were arrows made with a Sharpie pointing to where to look for the grease fitting. And I think it just gives us a quick visual reminder of what, where things are, what we need to tend to. Um, so yeah, Sharpies are great. I love Sharpies. They're everywhere. They're in all my toolboxes. They're on my workbench. Um, They're in my desk drawer. They get used all the time.
0: A lot of times one feels rushed and doesn't want to go find the manual and look something up or figure out the right size or the right fluid or the right torque specification. And as a farmer, a lot of us are used to, oh my God, something from your class. Like you said, I think you looked around the class and you said that there's a certain personality type that's going to die with a to-do list and that really stuck with me because I have like my daily to-do list of 15 things and my weekly to-do list of 30 things and the monthly to-do list. And, you know, anyway, sometimes it feels like I just don't have the time to maintain something. You know, I'm looking at the BCS and thinking, oh, I really ought to take care of such and such. But, uh, you know, I'm going to mow the meadow now and I'll do it. I'll do it, you know, next time. I'll do it before the next time.
2: Well, what you're alluding to at the end of the day, really, is just how we choose to manage things. And I think another message that I've incorporated since you took the class, but you know, I'm constantly revising the class, looking at the audience, looking at them for input, and thinking about what I get in feedback in terms of what are their needs. And I realized somewhere along the line that we're managers of businesses that's what we are you're managing a business if you have a small scale operation a farm or you know you're doing a native plant nursery you know we get into it because what we want to do is nurture things we want to raise livestock or we want to raise plants we want to care for the earth which is all good right and yet what we're really doing if that's what we are going to do to make a living and pay the bills then we have to realize we're managing a business. Yeah. And that can become a real challenging thing for a lot of people to do because we aren't taught how to manage a business. And frankly, a lot of managers in all kinds of operations aren't really well trained to be managers. Um, So really you start going, it becomes a matter of looking at being efficient and being effective. McDonough talks about that too. It's really clever that you know, they're not equal. <laughs> you know you can be efficient and not be effective and vice versa. Um, so, you know, I want to be, I use all these acronyms in my training because the tractor world is full of acronyms. You know, you have PTOs and SMV triangles and MFWD and, you know, all these ways of assigning four wheel drive, depending on who made it. So I have one called EEEs. I made that one up. It's, Effect, efficient effective efforts I want efficient effective effort in other words I want every effort I make on my operation to be both efficient and effective so that I'm not only maximizing financial return on the motion but I'm also minimizing the stress to my, my body you mentioned you know needing a tractor in your long-term plan so your back would hold out when you were 60 <laughs> right like you know so the the opposing thing to an efficient, effective effort is what I call an A-R-E, and that's an annoying repetitive effort. And as you well know, anybody who works in the world of any kind of agriculture, it's filled with annoying repetitive <laughs> efforts. So I'm always trying to look at what are those annoying repetitive efforts that I don't want to be so annoying or repetitive anymore, like how can I make it more efficient? And you know, it's 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 learning how to just move in the world more More gracefully, and at the end of the day, you know, I worked with a lot of young apprentices over the years. Some, some not so young, but you know, a simple thing like we would use a steel T-post to hold a gate open, and there was nothing to attach the open gate to. I should have just put a post in the ground with a hook on it. That would have made sense. Um, And so we just took a T-post and you know, kind of propped it into the ground and held the gate open.
0: You're hurting me because. Our greenhouse doors, we held open with like a crate of rocks for five or six years until finally this spring during coronavirus lockdown. I had a bunch of time to take care of things, and I finally put a post in the ground, a bungee cord, and a freaking eye bolt. I mean, like half a decade or more of using a crate with rocks about it. Talk about ares. Exactly,
2: and so these apprentices would invariably take the T-post when they closed the gate and drop it on the ground. I'm the first one there in the morning to open up the gate, and I always got to bend over and pick up the key post. Now, there's a tree nearby you could just lean it against, and I like things that are leaning upright because that means I don't have to bend over and pick it up. And I'm already going to bend over and pick up so many things in the course of the day that if I can just have a couple less things to bend over for, I'm grateful for that at the end of the day because, you know, we're getting older. We all are, and I don't mind working hard. I don't mind stretching and bending. But let's just face it, if we can make things more efficient and effective and we spend less time on things that are onerous, then we're probably ending up saving more, both time and money. I've been thinking about the time thing a lot lately. Um, This has come up in a number of different things in my head lately, but uh, a couple of years ago I was teaching at the farm school in Massachusetts, and one of the farmers there said something that really stuck with me, and that was, time is our only non-renewable resource. Time is our only non-renewable resource. And I've just been thinking about that over and over again. Like, how do we use our time? Because we don't get it back. It's gone. And then I was listening to a song the other day by the band from the 1970s that, you know, in the course of moving, things have come out that weren't around or visible before you know that happens when you're reorganizing everything in your life and i came across a tape from a band called the pusset dart band check them out they were very good back in the day
3: okay you might have to spell it <laughs> it was
2: it was named for john j-o-n pusset hyphen dart his last name was pusset dart p-o-u i think it's s-s-e-t-t-e is it two s's cool. and two t's French, John Pousset hyphen D A R T like dart, that you would throw to dartboard. John Pousset Dart, and he had a band called the Pousset Dart Band. And in one of the songs, there's this great line, time is something you cannot borrow. And so, I, you know, I've heard that song probably, you know, who knows, 500 times in my lifetime, and just the other day, I heard it, and that line just like, wow, how did I never really think about that line before? And I, you know, started going back to thinking about, yeah, it's our only non-renewable resource. You can't borrow it. So we have to value our time as much as our money. And, you know, in an operation where you're the manager, you're managing a business, even if what you really want to do is just be tending to your plants or your animals and not thinking about all this other stuff, you have to. You're managing a business. You know, and some things are okay. The thing at the end of the day is, because I don't want to make this sound so austere, is that there are things we want to spend our time on, right, that we look forward to using our time on. And if in the course of running our businesses, some of the actions, some of the things that we do, this all goes back to design and intention as well, are actually robbing us of time and so we end up at the end of the day feeling like we have less time to be with our loved ones and not just time but let's face it maybe energy and so our patience is thin and we're you know it's it's so that in in its own way is not sustainable so thinking about this whole of how we manage our operations how do we think about time how do we think about caring for all the stuff that we use and developing systems that make this efficient and effective so that we have time left at the end of the day, and then we have energy left at the end of the day to pursue those other things, like having healthy relationships with our family, and also, it sounds like you play music, Yeah. and I do too, and for a bunch of years, I kind of put that aside, and yeah. I'm trying to rekindle, you know, that that part of my life again, like, Um, you know I want to be able to do that more Um, I want to go back and kind of work on things that I feel somewhere along the way I got a little lazy like you get good enough and you're like okay I can fudge this and like no I want to get that down I want to go back and really master some things that I didn't do so well at when I was younger and it was just easy now I want to do that
1: what instrument do you play or what instruments do you play
2: I play drums
1: Oh, nice.
2: Yeah, so, you know, I got to work on my paradiddles.
3: Awesome. <laughs>
2: so that's my new thing. I have great roles, but I got to work on my paradiddles. I got to get my independence on my four limbs stronger. So that's my new thing. That's There's a few things that, as we settle in here and I'm looking at a new chapter in my life, it's, and, you know, also, I'll just be frank, thinking about getting older. I need to keep my brain and my body physically and mentally challenged. You know, I want to keep pushing in good directions and, and having the time to do those things is really important. So that's part of where that's going. You know, it's just uh, realizing that, you know, if I'm going to do these things, I better get on it.
0: (laughs) Drums early on in in lockdown this spring, I got a inexpensive drum set and I, I love guitar and I have, that's what I play, but I often flirt with other instruments when I feel stagnant or feel like the guitar doesn't have the voice that I'm looking for. And the drums are so much fun. I mean, it's like the closest thing to being at a concert and just going ape shit because your whole body is moving and the sound and the impact and everything is just there. And I am having a blast playing drums. Anyway, I, you know. I'm thinking about tools, and I have tools that were hand-me-downs, tools from yard sales, tools that were holiday gifts. And, you know, thinking about what I need to have on hand, what are some top tools that you recommend to people for maintenance? Maybe we can start with the air compressor. I remember you talking about that, just like getting the crap off the tractor at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, well, you know, I think first and foremost, that's that's the tool you need in your shop is a is an air compressor, and you don't need a big one. Um, I have, and it's a, I have a couple of them. One goes on the road to all the workshops. One is in the shop all the time, and it's a six gallon. So that's the letter or the number six gallon. Uh, it's called a pancake style air compressor, and the brand I have is Porter Cable. Um, and I have, you know, adequate hose for that, and then, you know, the two things I use the most are the air chuck for inflating tires, and even more than that, the little blowgun attachment, and I use that all the time for cleaning off debris from things, tractors, chainsaws, you know, on small engines, cleaning what are called the fins of dirt and debris so that the engine cools better. Um, That's just standard maintenance. I use that air compressor practically every day that I'm using equipment that gets turned on. And bear in mind, for those of you who are new to air compressor use, there is at the bottom of it a little um, uh, drain valve that should be, opened at the end of your use and you should drain off the moisture inside the tank. There's always moisture in the air and and you get all this moisture in the tank and it's if you don't open it up and drain it out and literally you'll see liquid draining out when you do this, over time that moisture uh just can you know collects in the tank and causes the tank to rust. You know, I love the Neil Young album title Rust Never Sleeps.
3: Yeah. It's
2: so it's so accurate. <laughs> rust Never Sleeps. So, you know, you don't want that air compressor to become shrapnel. Um, So learning to properly care for that, too, and it's a simple thing. You just, you know, run the air out of it, blowing out whatever's left, and then open up that valve at the end, and I usually have to tilt mine a little bit, and all this dirty liquid comes out. Um, so air compressor with a blowgun and a and an air valve. I like Porter Cable. You can find those readily at, you know, Lowe's Home Depot, what have you. Go online.
3: Um,
2: a good set of sockets, uh, and Thrives and you're gonna want different sizes. So, you know, they come in quarter inch, three eighths inch, half inch. Those are the general three for most of the equipment we would work on, um that you would need. And you're gonna want standard and metric sockets, um, and I think a type of wrench that I really like it's a combination wrench uh closed on one end, open on the other. It's a brand uh although a bunch of companies make these now they're they're ratcheting flat wrenches uh gear wrench is the one I use um they have a get the reversible so they can work in either direction um with just a flick of a a little tab um I use it all the time, those are my go-tos. Um, in changing the oil the other day, I used two sockets, a 12 millimeter and a 14 millimeter, a socket wrench with an extension, and an oil filter wrench, that was it, that's all you need. And I know what I need, by the way, because with my Sharpie, so this is in my 2002 Toyota Tundra, it's written right down when you open up the hood on the cross beam, oil, oil change. Six-and-a-half quarts, 5W30, 12-millimeter for the uh, shield bolt. There's a shield. It's a four-wheel drive, so you have to remove the shield to get access to the oil filter. And 14-millimeter for the drain plug. Bingo. No time spent searching. Oh, what socket is it? You know, I just know. Everything's right there, start to finish, done in, you know, 45 minutes, taking my time having fun doing it. Um, So, yeah, sockets. The gear wrenches are great you can get into you know tight areas they they have action with just five degrees of of angle so if you're in really tight spaces and you know they have a much flatter profile than sockets Um, so those those, again standard and metric um so the gear wrenches sockets uh of course you know you're going to need a set of screwdrivers phillips and straight um slotted i should say some hammers um it's it's surprising on most jobs how little you really need. Um, I mean I have a lot of tools.
3: <laughs>
2: I'm a little bit of a tool junkie. But for a lot of jobs it's just a couple of wrenches and uh, that's really it. I mean you can get you can do a lot with just some wrenches. So you wanna have good tools, um you know get the best you can afford to buy you don't need snap on you know that's what the mechanics like to use the mm-hmm. mac i mean you're going to pay a small fortune for the rest of your life for those yeah. but you know for a long time for hand tools anyway craftsman from Sears was a great brand and they would honor like if you broke a socket uh, wrench you could bring it in and they'd give you a new one i don't know if that's still true but I think there's a lot of competition now that's equally as good from, you know, the brands from Cobalt uh, of Lowe's and Rigid from Home Depot. They're all, I think, fairly comparable. Um, I still prefer finding things made in the U.S. if I can. Um, I think there's just a little better quality. Uh, try to avoid things made in China unless it's something that you don't care about precision with, like a pry bar.
3: Um,
2: you know, that's that's a whole different thing. But if you need precision – you're going to want to spend a little more and get some quality. The other thing when you're working with sockets or wrenches, you don't want things stripping out on a tight fitting and that's what's going to happen with cheap tools. You know, you're going to put a a socket on a bolt or a nut and you know, it's going to be cheap metal and as soon as you put any force on it, it's just going to strip out. And you're going to be frustrated and you're going to have wasted money and now you've got, you know, you're 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 in one of those annoying repetitive effort issues and you want to avoid that. So I think those are some of my favorites right there. Um Yeah, I hope that covers that. But the air compressor, if you don't have an air compressor yet, put it on your your gift list for the holiday season or your upcoming birthday or anniversary present, whatever works for you. That's what you should, you know, make sure that's known to whoever might give you a gift. All right.
3: You you know, I started saying
2: (laughs) in my classes, you know, people have other milestone life events like Mm -hmm. uh, getting married or having a child. We have these conventions that we call showers. You know, there's a wedding shower, a baby shower. We need a new and beginning farmer shower. And there needs to be a registry for it with all these things on it, like an air compressor so be precise like where they can get it where they can find it what brand you want you know make sure you get what you want what you need uh, to get started in this venture so yeah that's definitely one of my top five that is the top that's right there air compressor gets used every day
0: that's a great yeah shane you mentioned earlier that you are um, looking to work on a book and i'm just curious what you have stewing what's your book going to be about um, yeah. You know, well, I think bad. the
2: tractor, the, you know, book on tractor maintenance is, is it, 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 the material's all there. It's just a matter of sitting down and making it concrete in book awesome. form. Yeah. Um, and I think also one on chainsaws. Uh, there are books out there more on chainsaws. There's hardly anything on tractors that really are going to address it the way I want to. Um but chainsaws are so misused all the time. <laughs> I, I I cringe when I see things um, because they're such a dangerous tool. And yeah. you know, safety. Ultimately, we we didn't really touch on this. All that was on oh your list. Oh my God! I
1: had safety on my list, and I remember that was like a really heavy thing in the class. Well, and, and I, we I,
2: should just maybe that's a good thing to end with, right? It's like at the end of the day, that is the most critical thing is you know are going back to design and intention none of us start out a day saying my intention today is to have an accident and get seriously injured nobody has an intention like that nowhere ever and yet our the design of how we proceed through our day sometimes could lead exactly to that and so we don't want for that to happen of course especially if you have a loved one or children or you know people depending on you That's going to change that whole picture. So if you don't want to put on chainsaw chaps or wear a seatbelt on a tractor that has a ROPS, well, it's a free country. You don't have to. And if it's just you, fine. But my guess is all of us have someone in our lives who probably really care about us and want us around and want us around the way we are right now, fit and healthy and capable and maybe in some cases earning money to provide for them. So it behooves us, if not for ourselves but for them, to embrace safe practices with equipment. So that's that's what I'm gonna put out there to all of you. If it's not for yourself that you put on chainsaw taps and a helmet when you use a saw, or you attach your seatbelt on a tractor with a ROPS, or what other, other safety protocols there are out there for all these things, do it for your loved ones, do it for them. I am too close to this personally. I understand what it's done to somebody, and I know the tragedy involved when a, when an accident happens. That's extremely devastating. You don't want to do that to anybody in your circle if you can avoid that. You just don't. It's not worth it. Um, so it's. To me, it's just really important. And that's at the core of all of this, keeping machines running properly. I said this earlier, it's like learn how to use them properly, maintain them properly. They will be safer as a result of that. Um, You know, cleaning the debris off the tractor, the base of the tractor where you climb up and up onto and off from it all the time. So many times they're filled with straw and dust and debris and they get wet, they get slippery. You know, a lot of tractor injuries happen just people slipping off the tractor, getting on and off it not worth it. It's just not worth it. Um, So design and intention. None of us start a day saying, I want to get hurt today. So let's make sure when we manifest our behaviors, our actions, our work plans, that we're being safe for all the people who love us, if not for
0: ourselves. Shane, I just uh, really want to thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with me. It was really fun and inspiring and, uh, you know, playing a little bit of hooky from talking about plants and talking about machines again. And I think one of the things that I really liked about your class was how you could illustrate details with great clarity, but also zoom out to this philosophical frame about what it all meant. And I feel like you really brought that with this conversation, too. So thanks so much. I'm looking forward to a chance to cross paths again sometime real soon.
2: Okay. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. And I I really feel honored to have the opportunity to speak with a former class uh, participant and uh, have this forum. Thank you for, for opening that door.